Amen, indeed. Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm Pete. And uh, today we are in week two of a mini-series. Our grand theme for this year has been creators, not consumers. The idea in this series is that you are made in the image of God. You're made to be grounded in rest and Sabbath and connected to God by the Holy Spirit so that you can change the world out of who you already are and how you've been made. Our mini-series is about one of the ways we live out the image of God. When we know the love of God through Jesus Christ, we are free to become givers rather than takers. Today's message is about a simple image from the Old Testament that's reinforced by Jesus in the New Testament. God invites you to live with an open hand rather than a closed fist. We're going to start this morning from a story of Jesus' life from Matthew chapter 26. This is verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, Passover begins in two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. At the same time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. And while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. The disciples were indignant when they saw this. What a waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, Why criticize this woman? For doing such a good thing to me, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests and asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, like so many Jesus stories, this one's got rich layers to it. It starts off, they're sitting in the home of a man cured of leprosy. And this is in an age with no antibiotics. Jesus has healed Simon by the power of God. And a woman who has heard of Jesus, his teaching, and his miracles comes in and pours an incredibly expensive perfume over Jesus. And Jesus is about to die. He literally just told the disciples this, but the disciples don't get it, as is like always the disciples' role back in the day and is still the disciples' role sometimes right here in the day, correct? And so this woman comes in and does something beautiful, but the disciples get judgmental. Maybe it's because she's a woman. Maybe it's because she's not one of them. Instead of honoring her gift, they start judging her for not using the money for the poor. And I get that. For a lot of years, I judged myself and other people for this kind of thing. One year, I think 2004, we promoted child sponsorship through World Vision, and my finances were super tight. And so I gave up drinking soft drinks and coffee so that I could afford to sponsor a kid. And any time I'd spend money for the next five years or so, I'd picture how many kids could have been sponsored for that money. And I don't know how many times I encouraged people to give sacrificially for good reasons like this. 
I had traveled to Zambia where we were sponsoring these kids, and I knew how much our money could be used for something more meaningful than caffeine addiction. There is something more meaningful than caffeine addiction, friends, but we'll have coffee back soon. All right. So the disciples are indignant. They've lost track of the big picture because they're stuck on the value of money. They don't know something God knows. There's enough money to be generous to God and to the poor. And so they get indignant. They get all uppity about the waste. And they probably expect Jesus to share their attitude. After all, Jesus is the one who's been teaching them to be kind to the poor. He's been demonstrating for them how to practically care for the poor. He's been feeding people for free, restoring sight to beggars, touching outcasts in their society. But Jesus does not get indignant. Instead, he praises this woman's generosity so highly that it winds up in the Bible for all time as an example of love for God. She heard Jesus was at Simon's, and she brought something precious to give to Jesus in an act of love. And we're hearing about it today. I wish the doofus disciples had gotten her name so that we could say it right now. But they managed to overlook that too. And what Jesus does in here that you might not notice is quote from the Old Testament. And he's quoting a passage everybody present would have been deeply familiar with. And I'd like to turn to that passage right now. It's in Deuteronomy 15. It's verses 7 through 11. And God says, If there are any poor Israelites in your towns when you arrive in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. Do not be mean-spirited and refuse someone a loan because the year for canceling debts is close at hand. If you refuse to make a loan because the year for canceling debts uh, is close at hand and the needy person cries out to the Lord, you will be considered guilty of sin. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That's why I'm commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. And the Hebrew in verse 11 is actually, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy in your land. I love this passage. It uses a simple image that works in another language in another culture thousands of years later. It uses the tight fist and the open hand. So I'm going to ask you to engage in an exercise right now. Everybody make a fist and point it at the pastor. Shake it in his direction. Offer it up to God. Just think about how that feels. Okay? And now take your hand and open it and hold it up to God. And think about how that feels. How are you going to live toward the world and especially toward God and the poor? Are you going to close your hands into a fist, or are you going to live with an open hand to share? I'll pray. You know, God, uh, we thank you for Jesus, for this woman's beautiful act, for sending your son here to be with us with love and power. We thank you for sending your Holy Spirit today. We just pray, God, that in every good way we would be free to open our hands. We thank you for your open hand toward us, God. Amen. So from the start of our faith in the Old Testament, 
God has always expressed what Christians for centuries have called a preferential love for the poor. God especially and particularly looks out for people who are in the greatest need. Isn't that a good idea? Isn't that great for us, like when we're in our greatest need? And God understands human nature and experience. There are always going to be some among us, even in the richest country in the world, who are poor. And human nature will always tempt us to be hard-hearted, mean-spirited, and tight-fisted toward them. Those are the words the Bible uses to describe someone who lives without generosity toward the poor. Our hearts get hard. We believe bad things about everyone in need. We become mean-spirited, willing to harm people or let others harm people because they're not like us. We become tight-fisted when we hold on to what's ours, and in the end, the tight fist does become a fist of violence. None of this is the nature of God. You are not made in that image at all. God is a giver, creating everything out of love and then creating us and sharing everything with us. God even gives his son, Jesus, to us, and God continues to give us the Holy Spirit. God shares everything, even God's very self and God's life with us in love. That is the image you're made in. You're made in the image of a generous God who's a giver, not a taker. Even in these verses in Deuteronomy, we see God's generosity. He says, give generously to the poor, and the Lord your God will bless you in everything that you do. God gives to us in creation, and he keeps on giving, and he wants to give through us. And so, of course, there's always going to be the poor among us, and sometimes the poor is us. God's response and God's call to the poor among us is to open our hand to share in, with those in need. Now, right now, we have a community in tremendous need here in our church and in our neighborhoods and cities around us. The African-American community has lived under the weight of oppression, racism, and injustice for centuries. But there is a special cost for them in these videos of police shooting black men. Part of the cost is that it keeps happening right here in our community in the Twin Cities. Now, before I adopted my daughters, I could think about race theoretically, and I could be against racism in principle, but I did not have to live with it daily. Since their adoption, I have lost the freedom to think about this as a theory. Since our adoption and joining our racial identity and inclusion team here, where half of us are white and half of us are African-American, I've stopped being able to think about this as a theory because the reality is the people right in front of me. My black friends in this church have all been told by their friends or family that they need to move away from Minnesota. All of them have thought about doing it because they think their friends might be right. At least one is planning to do so right now. We now have an international reputation. I got friends being called by family from Nigeria that Minnesota is a place where black people get shot by law enforcement. And that's the reputation because it keeps happening. Can you imagine you got to move for your job and you have the option to move to a state where white people get shot once a year? For like being white, near as you can tell. Would you move there? 
I would never move there with my family unless God made me. So the black community is reeling from these repeated messages and these powerful images, and they're feeling unsafe to the point of death. The black community is actually in tremendous need right now. And so how can we be open-handed? How can we respond out of the image that we're made in? I got three tips for you. These are not in your program. You can write them down if you want to. I'd really love for you to pick one and do it. Tip number one is reach out. Call, text, email, or Facebook an African-American person and tell them you care about them and ask how they are doing in the wake of everything that's happened. I've done this a couple times, and I'm really surprised by how much I get back. Let them lament and lament with them. Tip number two, pray for justice. We all know human nature is broken because it's broken inside us just like it's broken out there in the world. God's actually the only one who can bring the full healing that we need. And so let's pray for our brothers and sisters in the African-American community that God would bring and do the stuff only God can bring and do. Tip number three is to get involved. We have life groups here at River Heights that have centered in racial justice or bridge building across races or in hearing the stories of people of color through art and story and film. Fire up Google. Find a place to volunteer. Find a way to get involved. River Heights Vineyard, let's respond to this and in all things with an open hand, with a hand toward our brothers and sisters, a hand of both sharing and connection, because God loves our neighbor and wants to love our neighbor through us. Now, all that's just a bonus for today's sermon because of the killing of Dante Wright and the impact it has on our actual people in our actual church today. I'd like to dial it back into the story of Jesus at this time. So faced with an extravagant act of love from a woman, Jesus quotes a well-known passage about God's love for the poor. And the disciples say, there isn't enough. We can't take care of the poor and waste perfume on Jesus. But Jesus' response is different. He says there is enough. Jesus affirms God's love for the poor and affirms this woman's love for the Son of God. And her love's demonstrated through the generosity of her gift. Unfortunately, today's Jesus story doesn't end in perfume. It ends in betrayal. And again, money is at the heart of the matter. One of the things you learn as you grow in reading and relating to the Bible is to ask, why is this story right next to this one? Both of these stories have something to do with money. Verse 14, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests and asked, How much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. So in this passage, Jesus affirms the Old Testament passage about the open hand and the closed fist. The woman with the alabaster jar of perfume opens her hand and her heart to Jesus. And Jesus, Judas closes both. He grasps for money. And the sickness in his hand and in his heart lead to the betrayal and death of Jesus and to Judas's suicide in the end. The Bible says Judas was actually stealing funds from the money they collected for the poor. 
Now, I wish I could say that I only identified with the woman who loved Jesus, I do identify with her, or with the disciples who are judgmental about money wasted on God when it could be given to the poor, I identify with them too. Unfortunately, I can also identify with Judas. Now, I've never, to my knowledge, betrayed Christ's life for silver, but I do know that many times I have closed my fist, especially when I've been afraid. I remember being in the Democratic Republic of Congo to adopt my daughters. Everything had gone wrong for four years. The death of the first girl we were adopting was so crushing. The second girl taken from the orphanage because of the rumor that Americans were adopting to harvest kids' organs when they got old. And then, I mean, it just went wrong and wrong and wrong. And then my trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo was just as bad as the whole rest of it. I was supposed to be there overnight, and they turned us away with our da my daughters at the airport. They said we needed a signature and the person would be gone for three to six months. And then we got turned away the next day and 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 it kept on going. And one day we were driving. I had actually been picked up and I wasn't in my hotel for the day. And uh, we got some carry out. And I had leftover french fries in a box in my lap. And we drove through one of the poorer neighborhoods and a young boy ran up to the car and our translator rolled down the window and he begged pointing to his mouth and I was sitting there in my fear and anxiety, and I couldn't see beyond my troubles and my problems. And I looked at the boy and I said, I don't have anything for you. And the translator looked at me as we drove away and looked in my lap at my French fries. And I went, oh no. When I think about the times that I have held on to things for myself, when I have grasped at what I have, it has very often been because of fear. Fear that I do not have enough, fear that there isn't enough to go around, fear that God will not take care of me. I do not know what Judas was afraid of, but he felt bad enough about betraying Jesus that he killed himself. And I know that I have been afraid too. Fortunately for all of us, the center of this story isn't money or the disciples or Judas, it is Jesus. Amen? Jesus is God revealed to us. Jesus is the incarnation of God's creative, generous love. Jesus is the most generous giver who's ever lived. Philippians 2 says, Jesus gave up the riches of heaven in order to come here and live with us, born in a stable, raised as a refugee, dying on the cross. Jesus lived with an open hand, he taught his disciples to collect money from people and then give it away to the poor. He opened his hand for healing and for blessing, and he gave his life away out of love. And so how will you live in the world? Will you live in fear that there isn't enough, or will you open your hand to God and to those in need? I invite the worship team to come back forward. I invite you to stand as you're able. And we'll just pray into these things. Because we need God's help to do this. Amen? Holy Spirit, come. You know, God, as we open our hands to you, we give thanks for your presence, your power, your son, your love.
Thank you for making us in your image, God. We confess that the image we've been made in is a giver. We've been made for creative love that changes the world. We ask that you would wipe away all the stuff the enemy tells us about fear, about closing our fist, about taking uh, things from other people. We just ask that you would wipe that stuff away from us, God. We ask that you would set us free to be who you've made us to be, like you. God, we offer ourselves to you through Jesus Christ. We ask that you would be our God, that you would live at the center of who we are right now, for the rest of our lives, forever. Help us to let go and to share, to give to you and to your people, especially to those in need, God. Amen. I have three tips for you. Uh, we always close with something to read, pray, and do to put the Word of God into practice. Tip number one this week is read Matthew 26. It's a great chapter. It's moving. It's got highs and lows. Uh, read Matthew 26. Tip number two, pray for God to be generous to you and through you. It's easier to be generous when you know the generosity of God, when you know God has your back. It's easier to be open-handed. Tip number three is give to God and to someone in need. There's actually enough to do both. You might feel like, no way. Sometimes I feel like, no way. But it turns out God will keep on giving through you. God's not going to cut you off. One way that you can give to God is by taking the 90-day giving challenge. We do this once a year. And we're doing it right now. There's a, you know, card in your program. If you've not been giving to God here, or if you'd like to increase your giving to God here, you can take that out and write your plans to give. And for 90 days, we'll just set the money aside and we won't spend it. And at the end of 90 days, if you want the money back for any reason under the sun, we will happily give it to you. Zero people have taken me up on this. And we've done it for like, I don't know, we're getting up to 10 years here. I can't wait till someone gets the money back because then I can tell you I was totally happy to give it back to them. But right now I can only predict, you know? I think the reason no one's asked for the money back is because giving is awesome. And it's actually who we're made to be. And it actually changes the world. It's actually a thing that God asks us to do is to give to him and give to the poor. And so if you want to take the 90-day giving challenge, fill out the card, stick it in the connection card box. We'll be praying for you and we'll send you an encouraging email each week. The journey of generosity to God and to the poor uh, never, never ends. It's an invitation for the rest of our lives. God bless you, friends. We're going to enter into worship right now and prayer. And uh, when the service is over, the worship team will let us know.